So for a while, we've been in a sermon series called The Abundant Life, and we just have two sermons left this Sunday and next Sunday. And so far, we've just addressed a lot of messages from our culture about how to have the good life. That's what this whole series is about. How do you have deep, abiding, flourishing as human beings? And we've talked about different messages from our culture. If you haven't been here, this is a little bit of an overview. I would love for you to go back on our podcast or online on our website and look up these sermons so that you can see what they're all about. And I go into a lot more detail. Uh, but these messages kind of come together in many different environments. We hear that if we really want to have the good life, we should be true to ourselves. We, could, we should consume more, go shopping, buy one more uh, package from Amazon. We should leave Christianity behind and our society will advance. And we should just live and let live. Now, I qualified and talked about a lot of those things. Uh, so I, I would love for you to go back and listen to that. But this week and next week, we're going to be talking about two more ideas, two more messages from our culture about having the good life. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about science, and next week, we're going to be talking about justice. Now, if you're a Christian, you might feel a little bit confused about this because you might be thinking, isn't science a good thing, and isn't justice a good thing? And my answer to you from the very beginning of this sermon is yes, absolutely. These are good things. But sometimes the way these two ideas are talked about in our culture can be misleading or incomplete. We need to frame these two very good things by our Christian commitments. So I'm going to make a very huge disclaimer and white bold words on the front of the screen. Um, please, I'm asking for grace at the beginning of this sermon, please do not hear this sermon through the lens of the pandemic or the vaccine. I'm asking you from the very beginning to show me grace, okay? I am talking about a very complicated topic, but I would have preached this sermon in 2019 before I knew what COVID was, okay? Let me be clear. I love science. I could listen and to Dylan Pfeiffer talk about physics for days. Some of you know Dylan Pfeiffer. He's a trained physicist. I could listen to him. I wouldn't understand it, but I would love to listen to him talk about this because I love science. Now, someone listening today might be thinking, okay, what business does a preacher have talking about science? Because you may know, and you would be correct, that the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about science. The passage today isn't about experiments or labs or men and women in coats uh, looking under microscopes, okay? The passage we're reading today addresses this. The overreach that every human endeavor is capable of. Let me say that again. The overreach that every human endeavor is capable of. This story is an archetype a basis for every cunning attempt by men and women to go beyond good and godly limitations. So, what I'm going after is not science, okay? What I'm going after is what I see as a deeper problem in our culture, which is ignoring good limits, 
okay? But you, in order to understand Genesis chapter 11, you really have to understand Genesis chapter 12, because in Genesis chapter 12, we read the story of Abraham. And you might be familiar with the promises that God makes to Abraham. God says, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will make your name great. Now, If you have those promises in the back of your head when you're reading Genesis 11, you'll see why God is not pleased with what the people of Shinar do, okay? So if you have a Bible, a physical Bible with you, or the Bible app on your phone, turn back to Genesis chapter 11. I want us to read this story. I want us to go line by line so that we understand what it means for us today. Genesis chapter 11 starting in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We'll have the verses on the screen. Verse 1 reads like this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now, this move east is a theme in the book of Genesis. After Adam sins in the Garden of Eden, God exiles Adam and Eve to the east. After Cain kills his brother Abel, Cain is exiled to the east. Now, I try to not take it personally that God associates bad things with east, but I think the idea is that God's original good intentions are over here and people are moving away from them, okay? That's the basic concept. And the way this story goes is that some people are moving east, they settle down, and they come up with this brilliant idea, this building project. They say, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, at the time, if they spoke like the way Bob just read it, I'm sure I would sign up. I mean, whatever he says, I want to do, okay? Now, at this time, you've got to realize this is so much more significant than just a simple building project. If you read Genesis chapter 12, you see the differences in what God intends for Abraham and what these people with the Tower of Babel are attempting, okay? So God says, Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. These Citizens of Shinar say, we're going to stay and settle in this land. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And they say, we're going to build ourselves a city. God says, I will make your name great, Abraham. And they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Their plan even goes against what God told Adam and Eve, right? God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they say, oh, no, no, that means we're going to be scattered from here. We need to stay in one spot. In fact, you can see that the original intention of this Tower of Babel is to reach up into the heavens. That's exactly what they say, right? They're, they're doing what Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve did without Satan's temptation. They're trying to be like God. This group of people is suggesting something that goes against everything God stands for, His ultimate t- intentions for humanity. They are arrogantly pushing past God's limits. They're going to build themselves up all the way to God. And I love, I love what happens in verse 5. They're building a tower up to God, 
But then we read, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. It's like God, he's like, I can't see what they're trying to make all the way down there. Oh, oh, it's that little tiny tower they're trying to make to build up to me. That's cute. That's adorable what you think y'all are doing. And God says, if as one people, speaking with the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible. In other, in other words, all of their really bad plans will be possible if they keep living like this. So God decides to punish their uniformity, their conformity, by confusing their languages so that they can't continue their misguided building project anymore. And so we read that the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, this is a pattern that we see in Genesis over and over and over again. When we see God's punishment of the people who build the Tower of Babel, uh, we, we think it's, it's strange, it's, it's, it's cruel, why would God do this to them? Aren't they just, aren't they united? Aren't they working together for a common purpose? No, 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 that's, that's not what's happening here. Because God will always begin by blessing humanity, right? He gives Eden to Adam and Eve, but then Adam eat the forbidden fruit, so God judges their sin and exiles them from the garden. But he gives them clothes to cover their shame. See, blessing sin, judgment, and grace. God gives Adam and Eve two sons, Cain and Abel. That is a blessing. But then Cain, jealous of his brother, kills him. That is the sin. So God punishes Cain by exiling him from the land. But before Cain leaves, God puts a protective mark on him. We see this over and over again. Blessing, sin, judgment, and grace. Now, if you know this pattern, you can look at the story of the Tower of Babel and you can see why that this is actually an act of compassion from God. He sees that these citizens of Shinar are already confused, already deluded, and so God steps in to confuse their confusion. He wants to bring them back to their proper limits. They are this conformist, arrogant people. But God steps in. Now, God doesn't give up on these nations. We find out in Genesis chapter 12 that God chooses Abraham and says, all nations on the earth will be blessed through you. So even though God scatters them all over the earth, God doesn't give up on them. He blesses them through the nation of Israel. Blessing, sin, judgment, and grace. This is the pattern that we see in Genesis over and over and over again. And the sin of the Tower of Babel is stepping past God's good, proper limits. And that's how we connect from this story in Genesis chapter 11 to science in the 21st century. When humans do not maintain God's good limits, we sometimes don't realize the mess we're getting into. When we let our quote, innovations run wild, God sometimes intervenes. So that doesn't mean cities are evil or towers are evil or language is evil. It means that these citizens misuse those good things for evil purposes. And science in our culture in the 21st century can, but does not always, ignore God-given limits. Now, the fact is, each week I've talked about this, there is an appeal to this message that science can give us the good life. This is actually very, very personal to me. 
because of my daughter, Evelyn. When Evelyn was born, we needed to take her to the neonatal intensive care unit. She was born with a rare genetic skin condition. Only one in 200,000 babies are born with this skin condition each year. Who knows what would have happened to her years ago, decades ago, centuries ago. But because of the science and technology that we had available, she was put in an isolate, which moisturized her skin with humidity nonstop for two weeks straight. Does Mitch East like science? Goodness gracious, I love science. But science, if not in its proper limits, becomes something called scientism, okay? And I changed the word there, so let me define it for you. Scientism is the belief that the only reliable source of knowledge is the hard sciences, Scientism isn't saying that it's a reliable source or the primary reliable source. It is the only reliable source. If you want to know anything, ask scientists. Now, this is already the first limit of scientism. It is not the only source of knowledge. As Christians, we believe that God teaches us truth through Scripture. We believe that wisdom can be passed on from older generations to younger generations. We believe in so many different sources of knowledge. Science is not the only one. Scientism also can start to make unscientific claims. People who adhere to scientism will sometimes tell you that they know the right ethical choice that all of us should make. But that is not science anymore. That is ethics. So science can tell you the chemistry of a poison, but science cannot tell you whether you should poison your boss or not. Science can tell you how to split an atom, but science can't tell you whether or not you should drop an atom bomb to end a world war. When someone who is an adherent to scientism starts to tell us how we ought to live, our ethics, they have gone beyond their domain. Now, scientists do not all buy into scientism. I've talked to Dylan Pfeiffer about this. Before I, I preach sermons on science, I typically talk to Dylan. He does not buy into this. Not all scientists buy into this, but the ones who do, we have to be clear that science can make mistakes because sometimes Sometimes, adherents of scientism will say that they've never done anything wrong. This really came home to me when I read a series by C.S. Lewis. I'm not talking about the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm actually talking about something called the Space Trilogy. These are less known books by C.S. Lewis, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. And the story is about a British language professor named Elwyn Ransom who is kidnapped by a scientist and taken to Mars. This is not an exaggeration. That is exactly the plot line of this book. And this language professor overhears his kidnapper talking about his plan to hand him over to the inhabitants of Mars to offer him as a human sacrifice, and here's the thing, for the sake of scientific progress. Now, Lewis wrote this book in his time because scientists had this very progressive idea in the early 1900s called eugenics. It was the search for good genes, 
this was not a fringe view. This was not something that only like 1% of scientists believe. This was a very prominent and popular view. The breeding of good genes by euthanizing people. Eugenics was the brainchild of scientists. Now, scientists all over the world would reject that now, but all this means is that scientists have made mistakes. C.S. Lewis wrote this trilogy because he wanted to communicate to us that science can be used for evil. Scientists are not free from sin if they put on a white lab coat. You can talk to Jenna, Ben's wife. Uh, she actually has experience in research studies and scientific journals, and she will enlighten you very quickly on how that process sometimes goes. Now, why does this matter for Christians? I think sometimes the church, Christians, can make two bad mistakes when it comes to science. Either we can see science as the enemy, Satan, the adversary, anything that comes from science must be wrong. Or, alternatively, science has the final word. There's nothing left to talk about. There's no other conversation. There's just what, quote, the science has to say. Now, the fact is, Christians living in our city, in our culture, in our world, we have to know what to do with science. So I think that there has to be an alternative to these two options. I'm not going to treat science like the enemy, and I'm not going to treat science like the final word. I think that there is an alternative to scientism, which is, which begins with the fact that great Christians have been scientists. We should celebrate the fact that Christians know that this is our Father's world. I'm excited when a young Christian goes to college and studies the sciences. I want them to learn more about this world so we know what to do with it. You look at any of the famous scientists through history, and you'll start finding that they were Christians. Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, was a Catholic monk. Arthur Compton, who studied light, was a Baptist deacon. Florence Nightingale was an Anglican who transformed nursing into this incredible profession that we celebrate it as today. Great Christians have been scientists because they know this is God's creation and we should study it. We should learn more about it. And here's the second alternative. We can't get through life without trusting at some level what scientists have to say. And I'm using scientists in a really broad sense. Let's say today after church I want to drive home because I don't want to talk about how controversial this sermon is. I trust when I get into the car that the engine will not explode. I don't get out and I don't check the hood every single time before I drive anywhere. Even car mechanics who know way more than me about how a car works don't do that because living without any trust in any scientist whatsoever is a recipe for paranoia. If you had to live that way, you wouldn't be able to operate in the world. So it is reasonable to trust that despite its flaws and shortcomings, science can give us reliable information. But here's the limit that, that I think we have to maintain as Christians. Science alone cannot give us ethics. So let's say I go to a doctor and the doctor tells me, you've got to eat less and exercise more to make your body more healthy. Well, I already have to have the ethical commitment to take care of myself, to care about what he says. 
Yes, he should speak as a scientist and tells, tell me what is healthy for my body, but I have to have the ethics of caring about my body to listen. Science alone, science by itself, science divorced from all other sources of knowledge cannot give us ethics. I want to connect this back to the Tower of Babel. I didn't just randomly pick that passage. God intervenes in the arrogance of the builders of the Tower of Babel. That's the way that story goes. And God can intervene in the arrogant hubris of scientism. It doesn't matter where we overreach in life. God God can put us back in our place. So science can give us great things. But no matter what science gives us, science alone can't give us the good life. This is what Jesus himself promises. He says, I came to give you life. I came to give you life to the full. I came to give you abundant life. Science by itself, science alone can't do that. Christ is our ethics. He, his life and teachings show us how we ought to live. Sometimes, from some sources, science can seem to make this promise that we'll reach up to heaven, we'll be saved from all of our problems. At its best, science is a tool in our toolbox to help us know God's world better. But it can't show us the way to live. Christ is the only one who gives us abundant life. Now, I'll say what I said at the beginning, just to reiterate, I don't want this sermon to be filtered through the lens of the past year and a half. I would have preached this in 2019. I'll preach this in five years. I think it's so important because we tend to think that there are only two options. We've got to see all scientists as the enemy. We can't listen to them. We've got to plug up our ears and avoid everything they say. Or we forfeit all of the conversation, all of the discourse, all the dialogue to scientists. We need to keep science within its proper boundaries. I think it's a gift to be properly understood and properly received and properly framed by our commitment and devotion to Christ. We don't have to be afraid of science, but we also can't worship science. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, we pray for your truth. We know that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we beg for your revelation of how best to understand how we ought to live, to understand how to love you and to love others. That's the mission of this church. And if science can ever help us do that, and I think it can, Give us wisdom and discernment to know how. To know where science can serve and help and grow our knowledge. 
We celebrate the gift that science is. But Father, we also know that everything has its proper limits. Everything has its proper conditions. And we never want to worship anything over and above you. Father, we celebrate all of the incredible minds who've loved you and out of their love for you studied your incredible world. Whether it was the far ends of the universe or the atomic structure of our existence. We thank you and celebrate those incredible minds who've learned more, who've given us incredible knowledge. And yet, Father, at at the end of the day, we always, always want to be committed to Christ, His ethics, His way, His life that we know can give us abundant life. Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.